guys. Um, uh, goes without saying what an honor it is for me to share God's Word with you all at this uh, retreat. Last time I met a lot of you was, in fact, at um, uh, Pastor David and Heidi's wedding, uh, if I recall. Uh, as they, I, I, I had the best view in the house, I'm pretty sure, as they made their vows right in front of me. Um, so it's good to see you guys again, no doubt, and I'm looking forward to getting to know you better over the next day as we share in this uh, retreat. Retreat, is that, is that what it's called? It's not a retreat, isn't it? Retreat, huh? Um, I mean, the fact that we are here today at this retreat, this weekend, speaks for itself as to why we actually need to be here and why we need to get into this theme. You know, as a, as a Christian over the years, I've been to so many retreats. That said, I've been to so many camps and getaways and weekendaways in my life, and, and I've also helped organize them as well. And uh, what I've noticed over the years uh, is that my pitch for church retreats has changed. You see, the, the promo in the past, uh, I remember, used to be, come along to this thing, come along to Getaway, come along to the retreat, right? Because it'll be, it'll be so much fun. Or there'll be um, terrific Bible teaching. Or even that um, we're going to have great fellowship. You know, that was always the promo. That was always the pitch. But um, in recent years, I've actually started saying something a little different now. And I don't know if you noticed this as well. I've, I've started actually saying in this promo, in the promos, uh, come to getaway, come to retreat. You need this. You actually need it. You need to get away. Because the simple fact is that our culture is in an epidemic of exhaustion and fatigue. Uh, it was bad enough before COVID, I think, that our lives were just nonstop and absolutely hectic, and full of hurry, and full of busy. Uh, I mean, the common question now to the answer, uh, the common answer now to the question, how are you, is no longer um, good or fine anymore. Have you, have you noticed that? Whenever you ask anyone now, how are you going? How are you? It, the answer used to be, I'm, I'm good, or I'm fine, but not anymore. Nowadays, it's actually much more common to answer with, I'm busy, or I'm tired. And if you're not, then it's, it's almost like something's wrong with you. You ever notice that? And then you add to that then the impact of the last two years. When at first, at the start of the pandemic, it was really just hypervigilance. Uh, everyone was just on edge. Uh, like, like you guys remember those days when we all went into lockdown and, and everything was just hyper, hyper anxiety, hyper anxious. There was Masks and social distancing was a new thing, and, and everyone was just on edge. And, and like, people were just hunkered down out of fear and of, out of isolation. But nowadays, friends, two and a half years on, nearly three, three waves later, four injections later, like, people are just over it. They're tired, and they're fatigued. And, and whole new trends now have started to come up, like the great resignations, what they call in the United States, where recently, so far, people have just been voluntarily resigning from their jobs on ma on, in mass because of this mandatory this or mandatory that, and basically they aren't allowed to work from home anymore. And so you just have this mass exodus of people just leaving their workplace. Or this concept now called quiet quitting. Have you guys ever heard, heard, heard of that? Quiet quitting is this concept, right, where you just, where it's, it's not like the great resigners where you've left your job voluntarily. It's instead, you give, you give the littlest effort possible to all of your work, right? 
You've all but checked out. You're still there, but you're not really there. You know what I mean? Those who just look like they're there in the office, but they're not really there. They've basically quiet quit. And now you can talk about people who've quiet quit their faith. You know, those who've just given the minimal amount, the littlest effort. I mean, you pretty much know who I'm talking about. I mean, like those who just, they've all but thrown in the towel. In other words, friends, we are just completely over it. We're tired. We're fatigued, and we're utterly depleted of joy. And if that's you this evening, friends, let me just say, you need this. We need this. It's good for your soul. Because who here feels like in, this li- in your life now, you could do with some encouragement. You could do with some joy. In fact, raise your hand and say, I, if you need it. Absolutely, me too. Well, friends, let me tell you, did you know that there is actually a letter in the Bible written to an original church in the first century Philippi, written for you with God's very breath and inspiration that you and I might have terrific encouragement and joy? And you know what? That is the kind of church here that Paul was writing to in his letter to the Philippians. It's not that Paul doesn't have any words of caution or warning to say. He does, and we'll see that later on. But overwhelmingly, just overwhelmingly, this letter just oozes joy and encouragement. Overwhelmingly. The word joy comes up, uh, and its root form comes up 23 times in some 19 verses, more than any of Paul's letters. This was an incredibly adorable church for this church too, by the way. But first, let me give you a bit of background. A bit of background. First, this was the first church that Paul founded in Europe in uh, 49 AD. You can, in fact, read the account in Acts chapter 16. At the city itself, that is the city called Philippi, was named after Philip of Macedon, who was the father of Alexander the Great. Great Alexander the Great. And when the Romans took over the city around about 168 uh, BC, they revived it with old war veterans and, 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 and so on, people who were looking for land. And then uh, and the city surrounded good agricultural land, and pretty soon it became a leading city in Macedonia. And so its location was strategic. And you can see the map behind me. Philippi was a long and important commercial road called the Ignatian Way. And therefore, they had trade, they had infrastructure, they had, they had entertainment and Roman baths and libraries and temples. It was so populated by Paul's time that it was effectively a mini Rome. You know, by comparison, uh, friends, it's, it's not unlike the kind of suburbs that you, you guys are around when you meet for church here around Newington. You know, like Newington's not a city, pretty much, right? Everyone knows that. Well, you're not the most influential suburb either, but you're well-placed along a route where people move between north and south of the Parramatta River. And out of most suburbs in Sydney, and I was, because uh, I was a pastor back at Homebush Bay, I did some stats on this, Wentworth Point and Rhodes and Newington and that Olympic Park area, I've got to tell you, th- these are one of the fastest growing suburbs in Sydney. There you have commerce, you've got infrastructure, you've got high density residential and entertainment, and plus you guys got a jolly big whopping stadium just right next to you guys as well. You guys aren't that far away from what Philippi was in the ancient world. And Paul saw the importance of this city as his um, gospel entryway into Europe, and he planted a church there. The guy planted a church there. You can read about the first converts in Acts 16. Gentiles were converted. Women 
uh, Roman officials, the demon oppressed, they made up the core team of the first congregation there. They had governance set up by the, Paul, by the time Paul wrote this letter. So in verse 1 uh, in Philippians, you see that he wrote to elders and deacons. Leaders were effectively raised up among them. And here's the thing. These guys were incredibly generous. They were incredibly generous. Uh, these Christians, so much as we know about them, they lived in rock-bottom poverty, but they gave beyond their financial means to other churches around Macedonia. You can read that in 2 Corinthians 8 as well. In fact, they gave so generously and they gave so much of themselves that they actually sent one of their own, Epaphroditus, uh, to accompany Paul. You'll see him come up later in this letter as well. And so by the time Paul writes this, probably around 62 AD, he's in prison uh, for being a Christian, probably a Roman prison, and he's in chains. Paul's in chains. Miserable, unfriendly, unsupportive conditions. And yet he's thinking about the church now that has given him the most joy and encouragement, the most satisfaction and delight. And he writes to these guys, and that's the letter that you have right here on your, right there on your laps. And he's writing, he's thinking about them. Now, who here would be absolutely stoked, absolutely humbled if the first church, the first church that people thought of when they think godly, generous, resolved, and resilient was yours. I'd be stoked, wouldn't I? If that was the first church that people thought of, like godly, resilient, generous, resolved, if they thought about your church first, I'd be stoked. Now the church at Philippi was that sort of church. And simply put, here's my summary idea for the whole letter. You ready? My summary sentence is that Philippians is a letter of joy and thanks at their partnership in the gospel, and at the power of the gospel to complete the believer for glory before a rebellious world. That's my uh, summary in a nutshell of what Philippians is about. In essence, it's actually a letter of joy. This was the center of Paul's hearts for these folks, and it's the center of this text here. Now, friends, when we think about joy, as we think about our topic for this weekend, uh, we tend to think happiness, but you and I know that they're not the same thing. They're really not. Uh, happiness is an emotional reaction to your circumstances. But joy, joy is a state. It's a state. It is a discipline of character which grows with maturity. I mean, that's why it's one of the fruits of the Spirit. Cultivated. It's like a, it's a trait like love and gentleness and self-control. It's, thing, it's a thing that grows with maturity and it can never be taken away through circumstances. Emotional reactions can. Hence elsewhere, Paul could describe it as a joy, as joy is a fruit of the Spirit. It doesn't change when circumstances change. And because look where Paul is. Paul, right now, he, he's in the, he's, he is in the most unhappy place right now. He's in prison. Why? Well, if you don't know what it takes to have uh, joy, well, if you don't know, well, okay, here, here's why. Here's why we can have true joy, and here's what we can do with it. It's all in this opening text here. Okay, we're going to see three things about this passage that, we, that was just read for us. We see three things about joy, what it requires, why you can have it, number two, and what to do with it. Three things about joy, what it requires, why you can have it, and what 
do you do with it? Okay, now first then, the first point, is joy. What does it, requ- what does it require? And, and so let's come to Paul's letter here from verse 3. What does he say? Look at verse 3 with me. Put your finger on the text with your Bibles open. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. You see? Now, right, friends, right from the start, it is obvious that Paul is full of joy and thanks. He is constantly thinking about these Philippians. They're in his daily prayer life. Many of us um, perhaps know this if you're familiar with his letter to the Philippians. Many of us perhaps find this even daunting to our own prayer lives. I mean, when's the last time you got this passionate about a group of Christians? I mean, we're certainly not like Paul in every respect. But I want you to see this one thing that is often overlooked. It's the requirement for this kind of joy. What is that requirement? Look at it in verse 5. It is partnership in the gospel. In other words, Paul had an abiding partnership with the Philippian believers from the day he first planted the church. So, question then, what does partnership mean? Some translations say fellowship, uh, some say sharing, but the idea is actually quite simple. Partnership means deeply invested cooperation. It's not, in the first instance, a uh, spiritual term although that's often how we think when we think about the word fellowship. You know, some of the translations there say fellowship, and then, it, and then it becomes like a very churchified and spiritual geared word. It's not really that in the first instance. It's used more often, in fact, in Paul's time as a business term. Like say two fishermen, right, wanted to start a business together. They would enter into a partnership. Uh, it's, it's, in, in other words, they would get into businesses together. Uh, they'll get into the business together. They'll share resources. They'll share profits. They'll share inventory. They'll split profits and they'll suffer losses together. You see? And so, what Paul here is saying is that he is constantly thinking about them. He's constantly praying for them. And when he thinks, he prays and he's full of joy. Why? Because he has an abiding and deeply invested cooperation with these Christians in Philippi. You know, they're sharing resource together, like money and people. Their, their gains are his gains. His, loss, their, his losses are their losses, and their losses are his losses. You see, he knows intimately what Jesus is doing in their hearts. And because of this, Paul is joyful, bursting with joy. Now, think about this with me. Think about this with me. You ready? Do you have joy like this? Do you know joy like this? Are you filled with unceasing joy and unceasing prayer? Because like I said, it's daunting, right, to know uh, what Paul's prayer life was like this. But have you ever stopped to ask yourself, why, why might your prayer life not be the same? Paul says he prays constantly for the Philippians. Why isn't your prayer life the same? Have you ever wondered about, wondered about that? And then we get mighty guilty about why we never pray as unceasingly as Paul ever prays. But here's the thing, like, might it not be? that the first thing that we're missing, first thing that I'm missing and you're missing, is gospel partnership. Hmm? Now, what do I mean? Well, look, okay, now, so far, as, um, so far as I've observed over the years, 
in being a pastor. I can see that there are actually three kinds of people who walk into the church. And maybe uh, you can see the same thing as well. The first kind, I mean, th- those, those three are those, who, uh, the three of them, are, I'll, I'll just name them, but the first one are, the, are those who spectate. Those who spectate. Uh, these are people who, are, who really walk in the church, and they're really in the church for themselves, right? Truth be told. They're there in order to get what they want for themselves, like whether it's a sermon or the singing or the break that they get from having the kids looked after for an hour. And, and therefore, they'd often be the last to arrive, and they'll be the first to leave. They're not in the connect group. Because, uh, they're not in the small group because small group requires interaction, and they just don't like interacting. They just like to spectate. That's category number one. The second kind of person who walks into the church are those who participate, all right? Those who participate. Now, the, the, these are those who are in church for themselves, but in, but in some measure, they are also there for others. And so they would interact with others, others when asked. They might even serve on a roster. They might even give us some offerings. And they'd, and they'd come on a Sunday when there's nothing more important on, but their, their life goals and their social life and their ambitions are outside of the faith as it were. You know, what the church receives is therefore their participation, and that's it. But the third category, friends, the third, the third category is what I'm going to say, I'm going to, I'm going to call them those who partner. <laughs> These people are not in church for themselves, but they are church for others and for the mission of God. They give generously, even when it hurts. And when someone in the church suffers, they walk alongside them, with tears, with grief, and visits. They seek out friends and family and neighbors, and they have gospel intentionality towards them. And they rejoice when people turn to Jesus. And they are grieved when people turn away from Jesus, you see? And, and here's the point, friends. You will not have the kind of unceasing and prayerful joy that Paul's talking about here unless you're a gospel partner. You're not going to get the kind of gospel joy if you merely spectate in a church. You're not going to have gospel joy if you merely participate with no risk to yourself. But you will certainly get the kind of unceasing, prayerful joy if you partner. Because it's only when you partner that you actually have a deep, abiding, invested, intentional, even emotionally intentional cooperation with fellow believers in the mission of the gospel. True joy, friends comes from deeply invested cooperation. And friends, what, what greater cooperation is there than by joining in God's work in our lives by His gospel? You see, listen, th- this is actually a real test for us now who are really teetering on the edge about whether we want to lean in and be involved. Or, 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 I don't know if you guys have a membership or, or if you aren't, you know, to think about be, to be a member. But see, see, I don't know, some of you guys, and just being real, real. Some of you guys have been burned really badly in the past by churches and from churches. Some of you guys have been hurt real bad. And the solution and the reaction tends to be like this, that you'd keep yourself at a safe distance away from others. You'd be at arm's length away from your next church or your church leadership. Do you find yourself doing that? Well then, hey, listen, I mean, fair enough. I mean, I can't exactly be in your situation. I can't exactly be in your shoes. I, and I'm not here to judge your story. But I do want you to know this, that if your mode and if your manner with Christians in the church that God has placed you, if that's your mode and manner of that sort of safe 
your sins, you will never have the kind of unceasing joy that Paul is talking about here. You will not pray unceasingly for Christians, as Paul's talking about here. Because what's going, uh, sees that you're, what's going on, see, is that you're letting your fear of the past or your mistrust of the present or your doubt of the future prevent you from investing in the kind of true gospel partnership what Paul's talking about. And partnership is going to be a major theme in the rest of this letter. It's a key requirement to joy. That's the first point. See, that is what joy requires. But second, second now, here's why you can actually have it. If the first point is that uh, the requirement of joy, here's actually the reason why you can have it. And there it is. Have a look with me in verse 5 and following. He says, I always pray with joy. Why? Verse 5, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And then check out verse 6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Friends, let me tell you a story. I mean, back when I was in high school, when I was in high school, right, I was in year 10. And it was year 10, I did woodwork as one of my electives. And um, in, in my first year, of my year 10 year, Mr. Rumbelo, my woodwork teacher, taught us how to work the wood. Now, I'm an Asian growing up in an Asian household. You don't work with wood. That's, you pay other people to work wood. You, you, know, you, don't, you yourself don't act. So I was there, and I was trying to work out. And the, Mr. Rumbelo was a fantastic teacher. He taught us all the tools. He taught us how to use um, I don't know, what, 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 chis- chisel and uh, what do you call them, rotary, rotor blade. Anyway, I really hope there are no carpenters here. I'm just really, really embarrassing right now. Um, he, chose, he, he, uh, he taught us all those tools on how to actually make decent things with different pieces of wood. Now, in the second half of the year, I remember very distinctly in year 10, Mr. Rumbelow said to us this. He said, all right, now I've, I've taught you how to use the tools. Now I want you to go ahead and start your own creative project. Make whatever you want. You can make anything you want. And so, um, and so we did. Now, the only thing he said afterwards was that, now you can make, you can make whatever you want with the tools that I've shown you, but You've got to have it finished by the end of the year, is what he said. And so we all got to work, right? And so, you know, um, uh, one, guy in my, one guy in my year um, made an electric guitar. One guy in my year made a surfboard. But most of us decided to make cabinets. Cabinets was nice and easy, right? That was, that was very um, simple. And I thought to myself, well, <laughs> okay, if I was going to uh, make what most people are making, I had better make mine different. I was going to make the biggest cabinet that I could. And so I did. As the months went on, right, I started noticing that I was dragging a little behind my other schoolmates. All of them had very beautiful, pretty small cabinets about to finish, and mine was still large planks of wood. And uh, when the school year ended, no joke, I had nothing but a shell of a cabinet. My doors weren't on, the drawers weren't in. Everyone else took home that summer. <laughs> Their little works, their cabinets, like the electric guitar guy took his home his electric guitar, the surfer guy took home his surfboard, and apparently surfed with it like over the summer. I, my cabinet was like completely unfinished, and, uh, and it just sat in the woodwork uh, room like an empty shell that it was, like a sad empty shell. And then the year, next year came, and my friends um, started to taunt me in the, in the, next, in the following year. They started... Um, uh, whenever Mr. Rumbelow would walk past in a new school year, my friends would say, finish your job, Dan, finish your job. Uh, so embarrassing, you know. Um, but friends, have you ever had that sinking feeling 
sometimes I even have dreams like that as well. You know when you're dreaming, like you haven't really finished an assignment or a uni? Everyone always gets that sort of dream. It's, but my one was, was a reality when it comes to my woodwork cabinet. Like, but have you ever had that sinking feeling of not finishing something that you've once started? I, once, I wonder whether you've had that feeling in your Christian walk. I mean, it might have looked something like this, that every part of your experience has told you that you've made some decision for Jesus. You've surrendered your life to Jesus. You may have even wanted to do great things for his name, right? You got yourself plugged into a church, maybe got into this church, got into ministry, you got into great Bible trainings and conferences and discovered new and wonderful spiritual gifts, got excited for mission, passionate for godliness. But then over the years, friends, just truth be told, frankly, over the years, some of that passion has died down and your body has gotten more tired, work's become hectic, babies are crying, you know, your lifestyle has just sort of calcified around your family, career, or just plain worldly habits and bad company. Or maybe tragedy struck, and you're still healing from it, and you're simply plodding along, and the joy, friends, my goodness, the joy that you once knew just doesn't seem to be in you anymore. And you wonder whether in your head, right, whether in your head, whether God is really growing you, whether he's really maturing you, or has he fallen asleep at the switch? Has he actually left you when you're at your peak when you were at peak joy and then God left you. Whether he's really maturing you and whether you'll really be complete. Well, if that's you, friends, here's the, this promise here. And it is a promise. Here is the promise why you can have real joy. And I'll tell you why. This joy all has to do with confidence. Confidence not in what you can do for yourself, but what God will do for you. Do you notice that? Notice it in that verse, in verse 6. It's he who began a good work in you will carry it to completion until the day of Christ. You notice it doesn't say um, he might carry it to completion. It doesn't say uh, should he carry it to completion, depending on your spiritual track record. No, it says he will carry it to completion. Friends, this is one of the surest texts that we can have, that what God began in you, he will carry it through. You see, with God, he will always finish the job. He won't leave you behind. He will never leave you behind the way that I left my woodwork cabinet job behind. You see, there are two kind of errors to be aware of here. The first error is the thing that we started our Christian journey, and therefore it's up to us to finish it. The second error, friends, is to think that we started the Christian journey, but then it's God who finishes. You know, like a kind of like you start the first half of your salvation track record, and then God tops up the rest. No, notice, look, look who, who started this journey. It's He, He who began. That is, it was God who reached into your life. It's God who unveiled the glory of his gospel. It was God who opened up our blind eyes to see the goodness of the cross where Jesus died for our sins. Otherwise, we'd never believe it. We'd be obtuse. We'd be way too ignorant and arrogant. In other words, his work in your life from beginning to end is and always has been a work of his grace. It's always ever been a grace gift. Elsewhere, Paul says in Romans 8 that those whom he foreknew, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. 
In other words, he's talking about you who have received Jesus Christ by faith. And that, my friends, is the very reason why Paul could have joy about the Philippians and the reason why you and I can have joy as well. You see, I said in the previous point that joy comes from invested cooperation, but the only reason you can have this joy is the confidence, isn't it? So listen, if salvation were up to us, there would be no joy uh, whatsoever. I mean, you'd be hot, hot one day and cold the next. How, how, how can that give you confidence? But here's the key to confidence of joy. If you know in your heart that God has began the good work in you, He will finish it. And that will give you a joy like no other. Friends, you are in the Father's arms. You are His handiwork. And He will always bring it to an end. You see, have you noticed, friends, isn't it interesting that this text doesn't even tell us how? Have you noticed that? The text, you, don't know, you don't know how He'll bring you to completion. You just know that He will. I like that generality. It's, it's deliberately vague. You see, if, um, think about it. If Paul had gotten real specific at this point and mentioned even just one particular thing that God will use to bring you to completion and you don't have it, that would just shatter your confidence, wouldn't it? But I suspect that he didn't because God can bring you to maturity and he will complete you in all kinds of ways. Wouldn't you think so? He may do it through wake-up calls. He may do it through the years of faithful, boring, plotting ministry. He may even do it through suffering, through cancer, through the death of a loved one. I've no idea how. I've, I, honestly, I've, I have no idea how he's going to complete you for glory and how he's going to complete you for glory, but, I, but we can be certain that he will. And therefore, you can have great joy. So listen, I wonder, listen, I wonder whether you've known confidence like this. How true can you say that the first taste you have in the morning is that you belong to God and are His handiwork. And if not, why not? Why would you deprive yourself each morning from the truth and the promise that one of the greatest riches of being a Christian is this promise right here? So, practical stuff now. I mean, what's one way you can remind yourself about this each day? What's one way you can remind others of this promise each day? This quote's fairly famous by J.R. Packer in his famous book, Knowing God, had this little statement about the believer that I used for some years, actually, growing up. It says this, I am a child of God. God is my Father. Heaven is my home. Every day is one day nearer. My Savior is my brother. And every Christian is my brother and sister as well. That's it. That was the summary that J.I. Packer says is true for the Christian life, and I have used it uh, in my early young adult years to this day as a constant morning wake-up reminder exactly who I am. It doesn't take a lot for you to be reminded about this when you beat it out the back door to get to work or to catch the train, isn't it? Or message it to someone constantly each day just to remind them. See, because that is the reason for joy, isn't it? To know who you are, to know why, what you can do with it. So. Friends, given the requirements for joy, given the reasons for joy, now finally, friends, what does Paul do with it? And that brings us to the last point, point three. He puts, and simply put, he puts his joy into action, and he prays for the Philippians. Look at verse 9 with me. Look at verse 9. 
And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, friends, there's a lot that we can unpack here about this thought, but let me just say this for tonight. This is one of the surest ways that you know that joy is not just mere feeling, but is a discipline of character. Because remember what I said at the start, and here's why. Notice that out of Paul's overflowing joy, out of their partnership in the gospel, out of their joy because of confidence, Paul prays for abounding love in the Philippians through knowledge and insight. That is to go deeper into maturity. Paul is asking for more knowledge, not less, as they love one another more and more. You see, we often tend to think, friends, we often think, you know, why, why do Christians often get so hung up on, on doctrine and knowledge and theology? I mean, why can't you just, like, love? I mean, have you ever heard Christians talk like that? Like, why, why, why can't we just love, you know? But Paul wouldn't have any, a clue about what, that, what that's about because love and truth go hand in hand. Notice what the prayer actually says. The prayer says, you'll, he asks that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and with all discernment. That is, that, that's an ethical category, actually. In other words, through God's Word, he wants us to love God and to love others out of a deeper knowledge of His Word. In other words, friends, you don't get to maturity simply by being nicer. You don't get to maturity by being ignorant of the truth or by being allergic to theology and saying, oh, those are for geeks and pastors and college types. No, that's for the educated people. No, that's for the... Um, you might say that's for the educated people, but if you think about it, the Philippians were those who most likely lived in deep poverty. And a majority of them were in the lower socioeconomic class, and they were told to grow in their knowledge. So what excuse do, do we have? But in knowledge, we grow in love. And as our love for God and others grow, we become more discerning, and that is the essence of Paul's prayer. Paul's going to go into why discernment is so important later in this letter. The Philippians, like us, live in a rebellious world. There's rebellion in our culture. There's rebellion in our hearts. We need discernment, which comes from love, and love comes from God's truth. But here's my question. How are you going in praying this into your life or praying this into your fellow brothers and sisters? For you who are connect group leaders, CG leaders, ministry leaders, leaders, elders, how much does this prayer feature in your prayer life on people under your care? It's right for us to pray. It's right for us to gather in groups to pray. And we pray for all kinds of things. We pray for sicknesses. We pray for diseases. We pray for better working conditions. We pray for less stress and for more peace. But friends, when was the last time that you in fact prayed for the growing maturity of love and knowledge, and discernment, and depth of insight in one another, and towards one another. 
Because that, it would seem to me, was Paul's priority, don't you think? Paul was in prison. He could have prayed, honestly prayed, Lord, get me out of here. He doesn't. He doesn't pray for better working conditions. He doesn't pray that the Philippians pray for better working conditions. He prays for maturity. He prays for depth. And he prays for joy. Why? Well, I can tell you, but I'll finish here, right? Paul didn't get this resource in himself because he was such a great man. Need I remind you, uh, Paul used to be a murderer and a persecutor. But when the love of Christ came into this man's life, he was changed forever. You see that hinted. Look at verse 8 with me. God is my witness and how I yearn for you all with the affections. You hear that? The affection of Christ Jesus. You see, for Paul, he could have this joy because Paul himself had the ultimate source of joy. And I'll close with this. Because there was a man who had the ultimate, deepest cooperation with God in Trinitarian partnership, Father, Son, and Spirit. There was a man who had the ultimate confidence that what God began in him, he, per- he could perfect. And he did perfect because he lived through it. He suffered the agonies of the cross and he died a shameful death and God still perfected that and he completed that at the very end when he rose again. There was a man who had the ultimate prayer life for his people, the ultimate prayer life, interceding now at God's right hand on our behalf as our advocate before God his Father. And this man, friends, Paul would say in our passage next day that to live is Christ, to die is gain. And this is the same man that Paul tells the Philippians to have this same mindset in chapter 2. Because to have him, friends, is to have true joy. And because of joy, this letter was written. So are you ready to get into it over this weekend? Are you ready to have a source of joy based on Christ that can never be taken away? Well, let's pray that God will give us a good night's rest so that we could be really engaged for tomorrow. Yeah? Let's pray. Gracious Father, we do thank and praise you for bringing us up here to the mountains. Indeed, how much we need this from the hustle and hurry and the busyness and the fatigue that we've experienced, not just lately, but throughout all this year and indeed the past many years. Lord, we need this. Lord, it's so tempting and it's so fleeting, the kind of happiness that we pursue, the emotional reactions we get to things, thinking that they will satisfy us. But Father, we thank you for recovering in us again, that true sources of joy don't come from the external things of this world. They come from a deep abiding partnership in the gospel and in the mission of the gospel to which we've been called. It comes from being invested in what you have done for us in turning our stubborn hearts to you. Because of the affections of Christ, Lord, we know that we are forgiven. And you have given us a mission and a gospel unity and a gospel mandate that far exceeds and is much greater than our own selves. And so, Father, we ask and pray that you would reorient our priorities, that you will stir us towards maturity, towards the beauty and love of the gospel again and again, that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, and that what you have began in us, all those years ago, or even most recently, you will bring to completion just as you have promised. And we ask for this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.